Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we have the honor of having Dr. Jacqueline Grennan-Brooks with us. Jackie has studied how people learn for many years as a teacher, researcher, professor, director, and co-founder of a children's museum. She consults nationally and internationally on topics of problem-based instruction and its role in language acquisition and cognitive development and is the author of multiple publications on constructivist pedagogy, with a focus on STEM education. Jackie has served as the founding director of multiple teaching and learning settings. The Biotechnology Teaching Lab and the Discovery Lab at Stony Brook University and STEM Studio at Hofstra University. She is the co-founder and president of the board of directors of the Explorium at Port Jeff Harbor, a nonprofit interactive children's museum and professional development center on Long Island. Jackie holds a doctorate from Teachers College, Columbia University, where she researched the development of constructivist teaching a master's degree in developmental psychology from Teachers College, Columbia University, where she studied infant-parent relationships, and a master's in urban and policy sciences from the State University of New York at Stony Brook, through which she analyzed mathematical forecasting models at the Congressional Budget Office, and a bachelor's in education from the State University of New York at Stony Brook, where she learned just how complex teaching and leadership really is. So welcome, Dr. Jacqueline Grennan-Brooks. How are you? Fine. Thank you. Thank you for the interview opportunity. We're so happy to have you on our podcast. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? I'm ready. Yes. Okay. So Jackie, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership? Well, interesting question, because I spend most of my time in all the domains of my life thinking about the phrase from the wonderful Spanish poet Antonio Machado, the path is made by walking. And so I don't really self-define as a leader per se, but I do know that in trying to do work, my work, reach goals, that I have found myself in leadership roles, and I find that I either make them or I stumble across them in ways that I really couldn't have predicted. But I do know that I haven't set out to get particular positions. What I've done is focused on what work do I see in the near term that I can contribute to, and therefore, where do we go on the pathway there? Mm-hmm. So it's more like a passion project. I'd say I never thought of it that way. I, I like the phraseology. You like that? Okay. Yeah, I like that. I like All right. that. I'll go with that. <laughs> so did you start as an educator? 
I did start as an educator before I got my first teaching job, though, because way back in the 70s, when teaching jobs were so few and far between, Mm -hmm. I got a master's in urban and policy sciences, and I was in Washington, D.C. at the Congressional Budget Office. Mm -hmm. And I was in my office one day, and I got a call about a position in a school district out on Long Island. Mm -hmm. And so I left the Congressional Budget Office, and I became a teacher. I taught sixth grade and then seventh grade math and science, and then I ran a program for um, gifted children, and then a program for gifted children who were at risk. Mm -hmm. So what do you do now, Jackie? Right now, I'm a research professor at Stony Brook University in the School of Engineering and Applied Science, the Department of Technology and Society. I'm a professor emerita. I just retired from Hofstra University from the School of Education. Mm -hmm. And I know you're an author Uh, as well, right? Yes. Uh, My husband and I are co-authoring a new book together right now. I've written books and articles. It's been part of my work trying to influence education from the constructivist point of view. Mm -hmm. How can schools and classrooms and teaching practice better respond to what we know about how people learn? Great. Now, if our listeners wanted to get in touch with you and grab that book. Now, a new book is not out yet, but our other books are and still available. The one that had the widest readership was In Search of Understanding, The Case for the Constructivist Classroom. And where can they grab that? That would be from Mm ASCD.org. So, Jackie, how would you describe your leadership style? Well, more than describe my leadership style per se, I guess I can probably better describe how I go about my work. And that is, I look at what goal we're trying to reach, whatever organization or group I'm working with, what are we trying to do? And then my the style with which I work has to do with the goal. So sometimes it could mean having a sit down with somebody who wasn't, in my opinion, either putting his or her all into what had to be done. Mm -hmm. Maybe it would be an acknowledgement that we need a new direction to the whole group. Maybe it would be a series of private meetings trying to find out how everyone is thinking, and then I could generate more of a consensus in a larger meeting or in a policy. Mm -hmm. So I think The style is very customized to my perception and the joint perception of the goals we're trying to reach. So would you say that it's important for you to connect with the participants or the team? I think it's the only way we can really get things done. We have to connect, not Mm -hmm. necessarily on a personal level or not necessarily on a level other than what is mission sensitive and vision sensitive. Of course, Mm -hmm. personal connections always make for a more collegial Mm -hmm. and perhaps happy environment. Mm -hmm. But I think for the purposes of the organization's growth, it has to be connecting around the work. And I think it's the leader's job to find out the domain in which the most important connection exists. So are you talking about finding out where their skills lie and how to optimize those skills? How to optimize those skills for the task at hand. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the important piece of leadership. 
the group needs to know where the organization is heading mm -hmm. or what problem the team right now needs to solve. Okay, great. Thank you for that. Now, Jackie, which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? Albert Einstein had a quote that speaks to me all the time, and mm -hmm. it's, as the circle of light increases, so does the circumference of darkness around it. Mm. And that means a lot to me because I think it keeps me always honest and growing. Mm -hmm. And it keeps me centered on to always better understanding what the setting is all about and needs, what the problem is in its essence, telling all of us it needs to be solved. So clearly it wasn't a quote from a writing about leadership, but for me, leadership encompasses multiple domains. Can you state the quote again? As the circle of light increases so does the circumference of darkness around it. Wow, that's deep. And that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. Yes, and I think it pervades multiple settings mm -hmm. and domains, and it applies across disciplines. Mm -hmm. Now, Jackie, what type of leader are you inspired by and why? I've always been inspired by certain accomplishments, certain principles or changes that were enacted. Certainly, the work of Martin Luther King resonates with me so deeply. But when I think of his work, I really jump towards the work of Joanne Robinson, who kind of set the stage for all those years prior to Rosa Parks' lightning event of where to sit on public transportation. So I think the people who work hard mm -hmm. at changing something that is deeply um, related to having a better planet for all of life on this planet, mm -hmm. those accomplishments are so important to me, inspire me. And then I look back to look at who the people are mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who have set the stage for those good things to occur. And what I normally find out is that it's usually not one person. It's usually a team of peoples, often which many of the important ones have been unrecognized. Now, speaking of teams, what does it mean to have a good team? And how would you build or sustain one? I think good teams are one in which people have the personal authority and agency to act in accord with their skill set and with the vision and the mission of the organization. And so you're looking for people who bring competencies to the work that has to be done. And then I think sustaining the team means that you honor that competency by allowing self-generated action to result in good things. When you say that, to me, that's someone who empowers others, someone yeah. who values others. I think that those are two important good words, empowerment and valuing. Not that we can give away power. We have to create settings, though, in which people can seize the power within them. Mm -hmm. And so that is how I think of my interaction with people to accomplish goals. I'm actually reminded of Seymour Saracen's work many years ago on the creation of settings, mm -hmm. that we create settings 
whether they be dyads of people for a very specific purpose or whole organizations in which people's competencies can flourish because we work together to help each other accomplish Mm -hmm. those successes. Right. And that takes a lot of intentionality on the part of the leader to set that stage. Right. We have to do what matters and we have to know how to do what matters. Mm-hmm. So, Jackie, what's the best advice you've ever received? I guess an interaction that I had once, one of the, the dean of where I was working mm-hmm. said that, you know, everyone wants to know what have you done for me lately? And so I was a little taken aback by it at the time, but I realized that that that's a good guiding principle. So what have I done for you lately? That my set of accomplishments in the past or my sets of accomplishments in other places don't really matter to you as much as what we're going to do right now together. And so that was a phrase that I think certainly keeps me very busy, I will say that, because with that in the back of your mind, what have you done for me lately? There's never too much of a day off or mm-hmm. resting on any past accomplishments. So I don't think it was intended as advice, but I certainly took it mm-hmm. as something that could inspire me. Hmm. So it moves you forward. So is it something you say to yourself about someone you're working with? In other words, you encounter them and you say, what have I done for you lately? In other words, how can I serve you this present moment? Or is this? Yes. Yeah. No, it's it's that. It's how can I serve you? And so the serving can take on many complexions Mm -hmm. um, because we have all different types of relationships, right, within organization, with either flat organizations or with subordinates or superiors. And I mean, in academia and in educational life, we have more collaborative settings, but nonetheless, there are always hierarchies. Mm -hmm. And what have I done to contribute to this setting right now so that we can accomplish better things than we've done to date. So it keeps me thinking. And it keeps you, I imagine, growing, right? Investing in yourself, looking at how to better yourself so that you can serve others better. Really all the time. Awesome. Whether it be what new technology do I need to make myself aware of or develop some skills with or what new domain Am I not too knowledgeable of that I have to research further? Mm -hmm. Great. I appreciate that. Now, can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life? I think I've had a number of different challenges. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really the compilation Mm -hmm. of challenges that have shaped me and Mm -hmm. continue to shape me. Okay. Mm -hmm. As I said earlier, you know, a career path in public policy intrigued me. Mm-hmm. In fact, now the other stage of my career, I'm interested in it and again, but then making the decision to become a teacher because it seems so important to do. So the challenge was to make a decision that I would feel good about. Mm-hmm. Okay. In another setting, I worked in a school district very closely for years through the university, but working with teachers. I mean, one half a year I was there in the school almost every day. It was a school actually taken over by the state. It was a school with lots of different challenges there. Mm-hmm. Working in the school with challenges even rekindled my understandings and my striving 
towards equity. What can we do to make settings more equitable in terms of opportunities for people? Mm -hmm. So it was a school that had lots of challenges and working in it was a challenge Mm -hmm. for me. And the outgrowth of it was making sure that I always remained true to what was important to me and equity and trying to combat inhumane treatment Mm -hmm. in settings Mm -hmm. has been always important to me. Well, that's important work, Jackie. And I really want to honor you for doing that because I know that that's very much on your heart. It is. There are certain um, very well-known and acclaimed movies that I just can't see. Mm -hmm. I can't witness them Mm -hmm. because not that I'm insensitive, I react. Mm -hmm. So emotionally to inhumanity, I've tried, if I have a choice of where to work, it's always in a setting with populations who have historically been marginalized in some way or even worse than marginalized. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for your work. It's certainly needed um, and we need to continue to do that. Can you tell us about one of your greatest successes and how it has shaped you and the lives of those around you? Well, I have been serving for many years on the board of the Maritime Explorium, which is a children's museum and professional development center on Long Island. I've been part of helping to create the educational program there and to broaden its mission. And I've been working with a small but very dedicated group. And so the Explorium is growing in many different ways. And some of the experiences I've had with visitors and and patrons and families allows me to code the Explorium as a success. Mm. One time, a woman with a child came in to the museum. I thought it was her son. It turned out to be her grandson. She was wheeling an oxygen tank, so she was wearing oxygen. Mm -hmm. And it turned out when the child didn't want to tell me you know, his name. And I found out from the grandma that he was on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And this was their outing. They tried to do different things on the weekend. And I, on that same day, had a volunteer working who, in my original estimation, didn't have a lot of intuition about how to relate to patrons. I was a little concerned, but I worked with the young boy and I had the young intern work with the child as well. And by placing objects nearby, by not through so much verbal, but through gestural communication with the materials for building. Two hours later, the grandmother and the child left, and the grandma said, this has been the best two hours we've ever spent with each other. Okay, wonderful. Um, In a different setting, a little nine-year-old boy said, this has been the best day of my life. He had made a pulley system to rescue a kitten. So this is what I code as a success. If you can create a setting in which people on their own and through interactions with the loved ones or the friends or family can make and do and create and innovate and imagine together. Mm-hmm. that is a successful setting. I would say that too. You've laid the foundation for creativity and innovation and connection, which is wonderful. 
And because we have a lot of people who come back all the time, we are always changing our exhibits and our programs and our maker spaces and our inventive areas. And so we're always ourselves engaging in the imaginative thinking that we invite our visitors to engage in. So Jackie, if some of our listeners wanted to go to your organization and have this wonderful experience, how could they get some information? They are always welcome. Our website is maritimeexplorium.org. We're open every weekend and school holidays and five days a week during the summer. And uh, you can go on our calendar and see that every single week we change our learning challenge for that week. And we have some people who come every week. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that information. All right. So next question. What would you tell a new leader who is discouraged about their working climate or culture? I would tell them to acknowledge it Mm -hmm. and do what it takes to change it. And that sooner is always better Mm -hmm. than later. Problems that are not acknowledged are really never solved. And so even if we might feel that we are not in charge fully of that climate, if we are part of it, then we are influencing it because we're all part of a system. Mm -hmm. So I think that acknowledging it in the way that's appropriate for the role that we play Mm -hmm. in the culture or in the system is imperative. I don't think we can hope something else is going to change it. You used the word intentionality before. Mm -hmm. I think with intention to make something better, Mm -hmm. we have to acknowledge it with all the participants. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, I'm a new leader. And once I've acknowledged what needs to change, what steps should I take in You have to acknowledge it. Right. So what next? Well, acknowledging it for oneself is one thing. Mm -hmm. But acknowledging it to everyone else is the necessary next step. I do not believe that it's an example of making oneself vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I think acknowledging that there's a problem is the role of the leader in changing it. Mm -hmm. And so if we can speak in non-judgmental ways, if we can speak in evidential and factual ways, if we can have the most low inference statements that acknowledge the problem, then I think you open up the discussion for people to enter Mm -hmm. without feeling defensive Mm -hmm. and without um, wanting to be accusatory. Mm -hmm. It opens up an opportunity for real, authentic discourse. Yeah, I certainly agree that that's key to be non-judgmental in our approach to things because that does make people less defensive. And also no labels and the least inference because the moment we bring an inference to the problem we've already shepherded in our direction Mm -hmm. and in that case we're not letting the other participants first put on the table their immediate responses. Okay, can you clarify that a little bit for me? What do you mean by not posing inferences? As a new leader, there's a culture that's difficult. I don't want to be judgmental, but what do you mean by don't pose inferences? I'm not sure if I'm restating that correctly. When we think that maybe the climate is one of either animosity or vulnerability or fear, You know, to say that I think that everyone here is afraid, I am inferring your emotion. Got it. 
okay? Mm -hmm. But if I state that what I notice is that when I ask a question, there's a lot of silence. Got it. Or I noticed when I ask for suggestions, people are sending me carefully constructed emails a day later. Mm -hmm. So therefore, you're putting on the table what is as factual as possible without saying, I think that you're getting together and finding the most palatable thing to send me. So I'm inferring what I can't see. And I really don't know that that's true. But if I state what I can see, Mm -hmm. then people can oftentimes reveal a point of view that I did not understand well enough. Yeah, I think that's so important because that has a different invitation to conversation. That's a great point. Right. And that's a hard thing to do. Yes. <laughs> it requires practice because we engage in so much judgment. But you're right, it takes practice and it is doable. Right. So reframing our thinking or practicing reframing our thinking, right? Yes. Reframing it in a particular direction, reframing it away from judgment into greater evidence and fact mm -hmm. and and then letting the synthesis of new ideas emerge together mm -hmm. from the facts. Great. So, Jackie, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you, and what are you learning now? I use the phrase myself, and sometimes it can sound corny, but mm -hmm. I find that it is a lifestyle, mm. that being a lifelong learner is a lifestyle. I just wrote a grant. Mm -hmm. uh, we're doing work on native plants to try to help clean the water because native plants, because of their root system and lack of needing fertilizer and for other reasons, mm -hmm. are a big factor in keeping clean water. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the funders said that they were interested in the rights of nature. Mm -hmm. Now, I had really never heard that term. And upon reading more about it, I realized that the term was new, but not the concept, but it got me much more now attuned to the multidirectionality of what we need to do to protect life forms of all different types. Mm. So that's an example. If I hear a term or a reference, I take it upon myself to learn more about it. Mm. And I do think that it's a way of life that keeps, I think, oneself and the organizations with which one is associated always growing. Mm. And I imagine as a researcher, you're always continuing to learn all those things and you're just full of curiosity all the time. Sometimes I will wake up in the morning and start thinking about something and I have to almost run to my computer because I can't wait to find out something <laughs> that I didn't know about. What did we do before computers? <laughs> if someone ever asked me the greatest invention, I mean, it is the internet and yes. whoever designed the algorithms at Google, I applaud because being able to hone in on finding something you want to better understand has made my life better. It certainly has. And now we have to research who invented the algorithms at Google. Right. <laughs> All right. So, um, Jackie, if there was something you could change in education in the U.S., what would that be? It's the assumptions we make about how people learn. Mm. In fact... I think if we could change our assumptions 
that would open a plethora of wonderful new practices, or at least could open up a plethora of wonderful new practices. So what are the assumptions that we currently hold that should change or shift? The assumption, and it sounds so old, Mm -hmm. but that children are empty vessels and we need to fill them up with the right stuff. And because of that assumption, we create settings with short blocks of time and teaching by telling and praise and reward and punishment and carrots and sticks. And Mm -hmm. we create settings that are not aligned with our best understandings to date of how Mm -hmm. people learn. You're absolutely right. And also how rapidly technology is moving forward. They can easily go on Google and search something they want to know. So when you go on a site, how do you know that's a good site? How do you know how to consult multiple references? Mm -hmm. Okay. How Mm -hmm. do you know how to look at the pedigree of the person doing the writing or the political history or the social history of that person okay mm-hmm. how do you know what keywords will bring you in the direction that's going to be the most useful so all of these things i find it amazing when teachers today in school systems don't allow children to have their cell phones because the teachers talking and the kids are doing something meaningful to them that's not related to the task so therefore mm-hmm. the logical conclusion is take away the cell phone Mm-hmm. In my classes, everyone's cell phone is out because we're always using them. Students are taking pictures of the creations. Mm-hmm. They're taking pictures of other people's work so they can compare it with their own. We have to use technology to benefit what we're doing. Right. I'm with you. I absolutely agree that these assumptions can stifle us, can stop us from growing and really connecting with our students. Yes. It takes a lot of personal courage and a lot of introspection to challenge our own assumptions. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to adopt a new program or a new protocol or assign one book versus another book, etc. But Mm -hmm. to really look and interrogate one's own assumptions Mm -hmm. usually requires a professional learning community that supports one another in doing that. Right. So if we were really going to change the assumptions, then we have to change the nature of the adult interactions in that setting. Mm -hmm. We have to create more teamwork so that we can help each other interrogate our own thinking Mm -hmm. in ways that result in something better and not just a different version of the same. Great. Thank you so much for that. Um, Jackie, what have you read that our listeners should read and why? Well, the aisles that I always go up and down in the bookstore or that I'm clicking on always have to do with looking at new innovations and understanding the problems that they've solved and the genesis of how they came to be. So I'm usually down to the science aisle. But what I would recommend to other people is not necessarily a book, although it's certainly uh, published. It was in a framework for learning, etc. years ago. Part of the next generation science standards has the cross-cutting concepts. And I have found the array of cross-cutting concepts to be one of the most effective ways that I've worked with individuals, whether they be young or new teachers or leadership circles of principals and superintendents and other administrators to look at these big domains that cut across disciplines. 
So to search for patterns, to understand cause and effect and look at the relationship between structure and function, Mm -hmm. to understand how systems work and what's the order in the organization of the parts of the system, looking at stability and change as it relates to our organizations. These are the big ideas that if we can use them as cognitive structures to look at our lives, our work, look at our relationships, the people with whom I work tell me that these set of ideas have been the most instrumental in their changing their thinking. So if someone new at this wants to get basic information about all those wonderful ideas, is there a book or an article they should read? You bet there is. Well, we both like Google so much. You put the word (laughs) cross-cutting concepts into Google and you will get the next generation science standards. Mm -hmm. You will get the original K-12 framework the science education document, my last book that I wrote, mm-hmm. Big Science for Growing Minds, mm-hmm. Constructivist Classrooms for Young Thinkers, mm-hmm. really describes them with regard to the sciences. But they emerge from the science community, but they are really, I would say, discipline-free. And they're called the cross-cutting concepts. Before that, they used to be called the unifying concepts. Wonderful. So Jacqueline, as a researcher, I'm imagining that you have to be so organized or at least really work at it. So what do you do on a daily basis to set your mind for the responsibilities you have? Well, here's another phrase that we've all heard. Perfection is the enemy of the good. I know. Well, (laughs) I have to always remind myself of that because in this busy multitasking world in which most of us live. We can engage in low leverage activities, we can engage in high leverage activities, and the same activity could change between high and low depending Mm -hmm. upon the context, right? But I always have to realize what's good enough for right now to move forward. And that I like also the idea of iteration. So iteration isn't repetition. When we iterate, when we come back around again, we come back with new information or a new set of understandings. And so most work is iterative. So if I can get something out the door or get something started in a good enough fashion right now, I know that by and large, I have opportunities to improve it down the road. Mm -hmm. But if I become too immersed in trying to make it perfect out of the gate, I Mm -hmm. usually will stifle the forward movement. Mm -hmm. What are your daily practices that you do to help set your mind? I've taken courses on mindfulness. That's a buzzword now. Yep, it's becoming very popular. This was many, many years ago. It really emerged from Jonathan Kabat-Zinn from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst Medical Center. Mm -hmm. And it is a practice of compassion, both self-compassion and that towards others, Mm -hmm. non-judgment, living with intentionality. It's about keeping the curious beginner mind all the time. One of, I think, the most challenging ones to understand is the non-striving. My teacher and I would always be laughing because I would say, what is non-striving? That goes against everything (laughs) I thought we were supposed to be doing. And so that has been the toughest one to understand. I'm at the beginning of understanding it. And that is, what's the difference between grasping for something so much that you're losing the capacity to achieve it? 
And so the notion that if we live in the present and if we appreciate the present, and I think this very much relates to schools and how we treat learners in schools, if we appreciate the learner's present place in school and teach them at their leading edge today, Mm-hmm. the future unfolds. So it's this intentionality, it's part of the practice is also better understanding one's breathing and how simply the oxygenation of the body and the brain facilitates the brain and body's growth. So it's a practice of mindfulness. Yes, I do engage in it and I appreciate its role in developing effective day-to-day work life and living. Mm-hmm. You know, I really appreciate you talking about this because I tend to act. <laughs> I'm what I consider an activist. So there's a quote, While you were considering whether the glass was half empty or half full, I, the activist, drank it. (laughs) Right? But I have to reframe that. Perhaps I should have prayed before I drank it. Because I tend to want to move all the time. But I think what you're talking about is so key. I have to be intentional about being present because I'm always moving. And so I have to slow down. And I know that as educators and as leaders, this is an important part of our growth to kind of stop to take care of ourselves and be present so that we can take care of others or serve others in the best way that we were meant to do. Right. It's like the airlines. They tell you to put on your oxygen mask first Mm -hmm. before you help those around you. Mm -hmm. And so in that setting, putting on the oxygen mask is rather clear cut. But in our more complex life settings, what's the equivalent of putting on the oxygen mask? Well, it can be taking care of one's own intentionality enough that we can carefully listen to other people. Because we've freed ourselves from needing to be focused on ourselves, we can focus on other people because we are breathing, we're oxygenating ourselves. Mm-hmm. So in mindfulness is also a mindful walking. Mm-hmm. And if you slow down your walking, you said you like to be on the move, try walking very, very, very slowly. It goes back to the cross-cutting concept. Mm-hmm. When you change the quantity, when you slow down, when you change the proportion of your walking, you can lose your balance. So walking slowly is a different task than walking quickly. And now we've sensitized ourselves to this whole other domain of walking. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. I think our listeners appreciate that as well because we're high achievers. And so sometimes we need to kind of step back. Now, Jackie, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? I think I would like to have done a better job of discerning priorities. And so I think the big idea has always been the most important to me. What's the big idea here? The details and the smaller ones will fall into place. Mm-hmm. And so I do think even as a younger person, I needed the big ideas, but probably I would focus on them even more than I did. Okay. What are the big ideas? What are the big ideas? All right, great. So is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you'd like to share with our listeners? I think we started to talk about it in terms of doing what really matters and know what you're really doing. And making sure that what you're really doing 
is in line with what really matters. I think we can get very caught up as educators and as educational leaders in trying to be good soldiers in the system instead of knowing that sometimes the system needs reinvention. Mm -hmm. And if it's not going to be us who reinvents it, who is it going to be? So it's a little bit of risk-taking and courage. I think that when you take a risk on behalf of students, Mm -hmm. growth, development, and future, that's a risk Mm -hmm. that we have to take and is reasonable Mm -hmm. to take. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Jackie, I want to thank you so much for adding value, not just to me, but to our listeners. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed speaking with you. And Lily, you gave me a lot of nice words that encapsulate some of the ideas that we spoke about Mm -hmm. in ways that people can grasp onto. So I thank you for your responses. It was great. I learned a lot about how you think and your beautiful mind. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. And although it's been around for centuries, coaching to develop effective leadership skills is fairly new to education and grossly underutilized. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.